I'm Zach Bitter, and I went from thinking I would never run 100 miles in a week to being able to run 100 miles in less than 12 hours. I am one of the Keto Heroes. Welcome to the Keto Heroes podcast, where we discuss the best strategies to massively improve your keto lifestyle, your mindset, and overall growth as an individual. Welcome to this week's episode of the Keto Heroes podcast. I'm your host, Hansa Mayor, and joining me this week is Zach Bitter. He's an ultra-endurance athlete, and he shares with us his story of how he used the ketogenic diet to optimize his performance and now gone on to break several world records and American records. Enjoy. All right, Mr. Zach Bitter, the one, the only, Zach Bitter, man. Welcome on the Keto Heroes podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Welcome. Yeah, absolutely, Hans. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) You know, Zach, honestly, when we talk about, right, the idea of the whole podcast is to present people this superhuman, present people heroes, figures to look up to, but also people who we can also say, who inspire us to do the impossible, who inspire us to become better on a daily basis, right? And guys, Zach is... I mean, where do I start? Honestly, like you've accomplished so much so far. You know, you've been very active when it comes uh, just to give people like an idea. You've been very active when it comes to um, keto and like the athletic space. You've been very big in running, going going on to break several records, which we I'm sure we're going to talk about today. And, you know, um, you've become like a very prominent figure in my, in my eyes, somebody really inspiring because you've gone on to do what many people consider to be impossible, literally. And, you know. Having gone through such an amazing journey, man, to walk us a little bit through it. Like, where, what was it like at the beginning? Where did all of that passion first got started? Like, where did that kind of seed got planted at the beginning? From the running side, of it, I guess, seed kind of planted in middle school. We, uh, I'm, I'm just old enough, I guess, and stuff. I don't think they do that anymore in schools, but when I was in middle school, they would do it where you have a variety of different, like, kind of calisthenic type thing, like pull-ups, uh, um, sprints, and then there's the final event was this one-mile run, and, uh, you know, I, I did that, and I, I had a really small class, so it wasn't a huge feat by any means to finish first in that, but I think I beat, like, maybe six or seven other people, but um, to me, as, you know, a young middle school boy, I was kind of intrigued as to why I enjoyed the mile when all my classmates just hated it and didn't want to do it. <laughs> uh, so that kind of got me a little interested as to like, you know, where I maybe would be best at in an athletic side of things. So from there, you know, I just was real fortunate to have, you know, a lot of positive adult figures in my life that were supportive of running and gave me the opportunity to kind of learn the sport, I guess, more slowly. So I didn't necessarily get too um, too invested in it when I was young and there was a lot of other things to be doing as well. And, uh, through high school and in college, I was able to compete in cross country and track. And that's kind of where I started to really take all the different ins and outs of the sport a little more seriously, especially as I kind of got into the college age, mm-hmm. uh, you really learn like true periodization of running and training and like what methods work for you versus maybe someone else. And, uh, kind of being curious about sort of that, that side of things. So um, yeah, I, I competed for a, a division three school in Wisconsin, UW Stevens Point. Uh, I did three years of cross country and two years of uh, indoor and outdoor track and field there. And um, 
one thing I learned through that experience was that my favorite workout of the week was always the long run that we would do on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, my coach would always, he, he'd say every once in a while, like, you know, most of the runners on the team, they'll, or I shouldn't say most, but a lot of the guys on the team, they'll do the long runs. They know it's going to make them better. But Zach does a long run just because he likes to do the long run. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that was, uh, you know, an early predictor as to where I'd end up uh, today with running. But um, if you would have asked me back then, I'm sure I would have laughed at you if you had said like, yeah, you're going to be running 100 mile races in a few years and make that kind of the focal point of your training. But, uh, you know, around the, I think it was the end of 2010, I did my first ultra marathon, a 50 miler in Wisconsin. And, uh, ended up winning it so that was more affirmation in my mind that it was a kind of a cool event or like sport to kind of target and from there I I started kind of just training more specifically for ultra marathons versus some of the more standard distances wow well you you talked on a lot of different things that I definitely want to dive into um you know you mentioned this aspect of you actually because many people, when they when they are told to run for like longer than one two miles, as you said it, they may do it just for the training aspect, but not really from like a from, from with like the passion, not really with with joy behind that. Where do you think all of that kind of passion for this sport came? Was there a figure you you had that you looked up to? Where do you think all of that started for you? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it it started kind of like I said, where when you're young enough, you kind of gravitate. To- what you perceive your best at so for me that was that was kind of running but you know I was just interested in being active I did a lot of different sports in middle school and high school like most of the traditional ones and uh you know ultimately by the end of high school I realized that distance running was probably the one I was was best at and you know with that just I'm just generally a pretty curious person too so knowing kind of that I had a chance to possibly explore the world of running and how, kind of how far I could push myself it became more or less like a personal experiment to see like, well, how fast can I do this? And then when my interest had started to kind of peak within the ultra marathon stuff, I just tended to focus on those distances uh, more so than, than other stuff. But um, yeah, I think, I think really what I tell folks when it comes to fitness and, you know, any type of uh, effort that you're going to use your body for like that, depending on what your goals are, uh, you should always focus on something you enjoy doing. You know, I think I, I see that a lot in the fitness industry where, uh, you know, people, they'll work out because they think they're supposed to, and they tend to pigeonhole themselves a bit into a specific thing that they think they're supposed to be doing versus something that they really want to be doing. Exactly. So sometimes when I get asked, like, you know, what should I do to get, you know, in shape or get healthy and, you know, usually I might, I ask, I answer that question with a question, but what do you want to do? There's a lot of ways to move your body. So you may as well pick one that you enjoy. That's going to be fun. And it probably sounds crazy to a lot of people, but for me, that's running long distances. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, I think that's the beauty. I think there's so many things people can do that. It's really, it's great to see that you really have room to find whatever fits to you and really what really evokes a certain type of joy in you. But where do you think that kind of mentality comes from that people say, I, I'm doing this because I have to, not because I want to worry. Why do you think people kind of stick to that instead of actually pursuing and trying something new? Yeah. I mean, I think at least part of it is just a unfortunate circumstance of like the, the activities that people become the most familiar with are just very unapproachable once you become an adult. You know, you think of like a lot of the sports that folks will do in like middle school and high school, some of the traditional things like football, baseball, basketball, you know, hockey, things like that. Like 
you know, those tend to be sports that aren't very available outside of, you know, a team atmosphere or a structured climate where you're going to have in like a high school athletic program or a collegiate athletic program. So you see people who are, you know, phenomenal athletes, but just not good enough to be like a professional kind of find an end to that road and not necessarily know where to turn. Mm. Um, and that's, I guess where running is maybe a little unique where you can, and maybe why adults sometimes tend to gravitate towards that sort of thing is because it's, it's, relatively approachable so mm -hmm. um i mean there's good and bad with that too because i think you get people doing it that maybe just don't enjoy it but like i said earlier they're doing it because i think they're supposed to be doing something so they just jump into it um but yeah i think like just as a you know kind of a, a macro scope it would be kind of cool if uh people would look at sport or look at physical athletic type stuff as more of an enjoyment thing versus a need type of thing and you know, have opportunities maybe get, get put up that are, that are fun and, uh, and good for health. And I think we see that to a degree. I think people are starting to recognize that you see like, uh, some of these more newer sports, I guess, like Spartan mm -hmm. CrossFit type stuff, obstacle mm -hmm. course type stuff where, uh, there's, there's certainly not a running element to it, but it's also like an overall physical fitness thing that it looks like are really catching on. And it's, I think there's probably like dozens of other potential like event type things that we could, we could do to make that more enjoyable and make that more approachable for, for people to kind of get into. And, you know, I actually think within the sport of running, you know, I, I follow a little bit along like just like the track and field type stuff and the marathon road racing stuff. That's the shorter, faster distances. And I think it's kind of unfortunate just the way that even that sport has really kind of came to or been structured and especially in, in the u.s because like when you think about it there's uh like these 400 meter track facilities all over the place like i probably have like three or four of them within like three or four miles of my house and uh so like the potential of doing like you know like track meet community track meets and things like that and get people interested in 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 other sport or in in that sport specifically but i think there's a lot of potential that that we're maybe not taking advantage of as well mm. Yeah, you know, I think I think it's about trying out, right? I think it's about exploring and really just just tinkering, testing, just also I think kind of swimming against the, you know, just kind of breaking the pattern of you saying, you know, you stick to the masses where or maybe just trying out something for yourself because I think because the majority of people try to stick to like group sports like, you know, like team sports, um they neglect the fact that you can actually go by yourself and find what really works for you instead of just going with masses and, and with your friends maybe. But um, what do you, what would you advise for advice for somebody who's like starting out, who maybe is new to running, what would you say is the great starting point for them to do? Would you say it's more of like genetic based that you say, okay, go more long distance running or go more of like a sprint base, or do you say start here and then try your way out and see how that goes, goes for you? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you should leave yourself enough room to explore to find out what you really like, um, and then kind of focus in on that once you identify it. And um, so I don't know if there's necessarily a right or wrong answer to that. I think, uh, uh, you know, some people are going to find that they just like, you know, kind of like myself, where uh, I like to do long runs. So I pick events to train for that are long. Um, you know, if I liked running short, faster stuff, you know, I could pick events that were shorter and faster as well and, and train for that. So my kind of general 
recommendation for folks is to kind of work backwards on that. And, and I still do this, even though I've been, you know, running now for, I don't know, almost two decades that like, you know, you look at it and think, um, instead of thinking like, well, this is the race I should do. I think like, well, what type of training do I want to do? And if it's like, if I want to run on trails, then I'm going to pick a race that matches the type of trails I want to run on because then I know the build up to that is going to be enjoyable because I'm actually motivated to be doing it versus like, you know, say being feeling like I want to run on the trails and then picking like a flat road run or something yeah. race or something like that, where, and then I'm going to find myself specifying or training towards an event. I'm not really motivated to get, get really fit for. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes I we try to work, I try to help people work backwards with that and just really dig in to find out what's the driving force or what's the motivating factor and then kind of build it, build it that way. Um, but running in general, I think like it's really easy to, get motivated or see someone and be like, okay, I want to do that. And then try to get right to where they are without recognizing kind of how long it took them to get there. So individual circumstances are are really important. I think just to avoid things like injury or fatigue or, uh, you know, just doing too much or finding yourself in a position where you're just not going to enjoy it because you're trying to do too much too soon and kind of starting at a reasonable point. So the cool thing about running is there's so many different entrance points and uh, there are definitely groups out there that are kind of at all different tiers of experience, tiers of ability and like training volume and things like that. So if being with a group is motivating, you can certainly find those things. Um, but if you're looking to do it individually too, I think you know definitely treating yourself as an individual versus just trying to kind of parrot what your friend is doing or uh, you know match some program that you found perfectly if you're not quite ready for it. Yeah. yeah, I think that's huge. I think they just say, uh, you know, first of all, find what works for you. What do you enjoy? What do you like to do? And then second of all, like start somewhere, but then also train accordingly to what it is you want to do. Because I think when you compare yourself to somebody like you, for example, who has gone on to war, to break several, you know, you broke, you broke the American 100-mile uh, record in the, in the world record as well. I mean, it's huge. And when people see that, I think it's very scary, right? Because they think to themselves, all right, I mean, I really want to do this, but I'm not sure if I can cope with that. And I think that's where the right training comes in, right? That's where understanding that it's time. I mean, you mentioned you've been on this for, what, two decades now? I think it's huge to understand kind of like the patience is kind of, is that what you're trying to talk what you're trying to say yeah absolutely and i think it's sometimes it's it's kind of almost hard to recognize the path because sometimes you're doing things that are kind of building the foundation for something you don't even know you're going to do yet like mm-hmm. when i think of my collegiate running experience and some of the stuff i did post college before i got into ultra marathons you know i didn't know that i was going to start to focus on ultra marathons later in my life but you know, that base of training in those early stages are going, are going through some of the more like uh, traditional training blocks and buildups. We're definitely kind of laying the foundation to, uh, you know, essentially build a vehicle, so to speak, to be able to, you know, put the type of training I wanted to do on, on, on top of uh, some experience as opposed to trying to do it kind of blindly or, you know, as like kind of the first time uh, getting, and you see that sometimes people will do ultra marathons that have never really been runners but usually they're involved in some sort of sport or physical activity that kind of drove them that way uh but i think like having that foundation is definitely useful so there's really no bad starting point in terms of saying like okay i want to try to do some do a 5k first or something like that 
And, you know, I always find myself saying this too, because like, I think sometimes the thought within the running community is that like ultra marathons are kind of this like grand, like kind of like I need to get to that. Whereas like, you know, something like a 5k or 10k is less prestigious because it's shorter, mm. but, uh, running a fast 5k or 10k as hard as you can is, uh, equally as hard as running a hundred yeah. miles. It's just a different type of pain. It's, do you want it to be short and sharp and over quicker or kind of slow and dull and last all day? I know, I know. <laughs> I think one thing I always like to talk about is this aspect of, you know, I think once you find your kind of like your rhythm when you're running, I think it's, it's, I think the hardest part is like in the, in the beginning and maybe where with endurance, like ultra endurance, it may be a little different from like a mindset perspective. It's definitely a topic I want to talk with you about later on in the podcast. But, you know, I think when we run and, and we find our rhythm right within the race, I think that then becomes comparable, the intensity uh, to different events, simply because of the intensity or the duration at the end is kind of equal to the pain we perceive, right? when the when the race is done but you know you how old were you exactly when you first ran your first ultra endurance ultra endurance event um so i think i was like 24 years old when i did it. i did a 50 miler in wisconsin in 2010 so yeah i would have been 24 wow and, and what was that experience like at the beginning like the very first one like how was preparation like what what was going through your mind at that point like <laughs> Yeah, you know, it was it was kind of funny because uh, I I more or less kind of bypassed the marathon is in terms of training for it in a in a good way I would say so mm -hmm. like I spent a couple of years after college where I ran some marathons but I wouldn't say I necessarily had a a dialed in approach to really prepare for them I was just more or less running a lot and the sheer volume of running I was doing was good enough to get me you know decently fit for the marathon but when i look back at it now i think like ah, if i would have done this and this and this maybe mm -hmm. i would have you know peaked differently so like the when i finally did start do that first 50 miler i actually did what would probably be considered a pretty solid marathon training plan going into that and um part of that was just because you know i knew enough about workouts and training blocks and periodization from my college days to kind of build a program that i thought would be suitable and I certainly do things a little differently now than I did back then, but uh, a lot of it was just, I think my, my volume was somewhere between about hundred, 120 miles per week. Uh, and I would do kind of a combination of different workouts. I would do some short intervals on the track once a week. And then I would do like a longer tempo run once a week. And then I would do a long run once a week. And the other runs were just kind of like recovery volume building uh, base runs in there. Uh, and I just basically did that all summer leading into that fall race in 2010. And, uh, it worked well enough, I guess. So, <laughs> and how was that? How was the end result? You mentioned you, you won that, you said it or. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was the, the North face endurance challenge in the Midwest regional. Wow. And how, how was that feeling? Like, did you say, did you say like, all right, like I'm almost dead now after 50 miles, the first time ever, or were you like hungry for more? Like, how was that experience today? Like when you finished and when you got to that finish line, what was going through your mind at that point? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I think like it, at, at immediately I was, I was pretty stoked because, you know, I won and historically I'd been a decent runner, but you know, I, I typically wasn't like, I wasn't winning like state cross country or state track in high school. And I wasn't like winning conference or regional or national titles or anything like that in college. So to finish first was kind of 
um, I wouldn't say a brand new experience, but it was definitely new enough where, um, you know, it felt good as you would imagine. But, uh, it's, it's interesting cause like the days after you're so sore, <laughs> it's like, it's like, it hurts, but it's also kind of gratifying. So I, I remember the, I laugh about it now because it, you just, you tend to either cope with these things a little better or your body just adjusts to a degree. But that first 50 miler I did, I mean, I was so sore the five days after that. I remember, um, I, I woke up in the middle of the night, either the night after or two nights after I was so sore. It took me like five minutes just to get out of bed to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's kind of a, a painful, but pleasant experience when the race goes well. And then, you know, I was motivated, uh, to really explore the sport. And, um, I gave myself some time though. I didn't do another one for another year. And, uh, you know, I, the way I saw it was, I was 24. I didn't necessarily have this huge ambition going into the race to necessarily target ultra marathons exclusively. So I was a little bit on the fence as to like what I wanted to do with running as a sport. Uh, I knew I'd eventually want to do more ultras. I just didn't know how consuming I wanted to make it. Mm -hmm. So I waited another year until the end of 2011. And I think I did three fifty milers that kind of fall slash win early winter time frame and after that i was more or less hooked and from about 2012 and beyond i uh basically focused just on ultra marathons boy that that's crazy like that still i mean that's a lot of that's a huge intensity and i think one important topic there would be like how do you not burn out because i think running so often mm -hmm. running so you know it's such an intense because you, you you definitely i mean you're going for the win you want to compete you want to be your best right and then how do you kind of manage not like burning out? You mentioned you were like so sore five days after the race. How do you recover from that in a way that you can actually perform, you know, a couple of weeks later after that? Yeah. You know, I find that interesting because I mean, it's definitely a hot topic within ultra marathoning is burning out. And, uh, you know, I think there's a little bit of misunderstanding within that whole framework. I think there's kind of two or maybe it's less misunderstanding and just misdefining to a degree where there's burning out to the sense where like you drove yourself in the ground so far, like you might need to just stop that activity altogether for a significant amount of time, maybe years. And, and you may never return to that same kind of level. And I mean, that's just like almost like complete endocrine system shutdown type stuff yeah. that I think people sometimes think they maybe have or assume is, is happening. Uh, but you, most of the time, I think what happens is people kind of burn themselves out a little bit mentally or they overreach a little bit, which is probably a better way to call it. And when you overreach, like you feel a little fried, you feel like your legs are heavy, you feel tired, unmotivated. And if you catch that early enough and just respect that you need to take a step back and let your body recover, you can usually get back to it. And we see that happen a lot in, in the sport as well. Um, and it's, it's certainly happened to me too, where I get, I try to do one extra race at the end of the year and I just don't have it that race. And I, you know, it's clear to me then and with hindsight that, well, it should have ended the season a, a race earlier, but then, then I know, and then I take an off season and wait to kind of build back up more gradually as the energy returns and the mental motivation kind of returns. And, um, so there's kind of like two different sides to that. And I, I think there's a lot going on with why you'd maybe end up in that situation. And, uh, you know, some of it's just people getting doing too much too soon. Uh, it, you know, you like we were saying before, like you hop online, you can find no shortage of 
different descriptions of what people are doing in training. Uh, and nowadays with Strava and all these other kind of running or fitness like application type devices, it's easy to say, well, this person did that much. I need to do that too. Mm-hmm. Um, so you sometimes see people getting, getting into the sport maybe a little too fast and finding that they're, uh, they're, they're toasting themselves a little bit. Whereas like, I think one of the reasons why I've been able to stay in the sport as long as I have so far and still be energized to kind of focus on it is it was a real gradual process for me. So like, you know, in middle school, I was basically doing very little actually structured training. I'd hop in some races every once in a while and just see what I could do. Uh, by the time I got into high school, you know, I was running like r- really low volume, uh, you know, maybe like 20 to 30 miles a week during the season. And I think maybe one, one year, my senior year, I trained year round. Um, the, so by the time I got to college, you know, I had essentially basically done the bare minimum in terms of like the amount of running or the time spent. So then when I stepped up to the kind of collegiate training program, it was just taking it another step further and then each year just adding a little more and then having that kind of base build up really slowly over years rather than, you know, in a single season or something like that. So I think sometimes people run into the problem with that they'll see someone training high volume approach and think, well, I have to do that to be successful, but they don't have that foundation to really to lean on. And that can learn to just, you know, your body's not uh, capable of handling that work, handling that workload and you can, get yourself dug deep and then then you have guys who did do that but get kind of hung up on maybe all the different opportunities there's just so many different races you can do now it's easy to have a good race and be like okay I want to do that again and then sign up for another one a couple weeks later and then just keep doing that and doing that before you find out you know you're just doing a little too much and have to take a step back yeah yeah I think it's it's really about finding that sweet spot in between like being patient and, and your competitive drive, right? It's kind of finding that sweet spot and let them both like really work together in a way that you make progress, but don't overreach and, you know, kind of overstep your boundaries, right? And to say, I'm going to, I'm going to work and listen to my body as well. Cause I think that's mm-hmm. something you mentioned. That's really great to take a look at. And then what were for you, like, what was like the hardest thing for you at the beginning, or what was kind of like the biggest roadblock you had to face in all of this journey so far? Be like after that. Yeah, you know, I think in the early stages uh, of ultra marathon running, I think there was maybe a couple things that I could see as being hurdles to get over. Um, one was just like logistically planning all of it. Uh, you know, when I got into it, there when during peak training, you know, sometimes I'll hit up to 20 hours worth of kind of running and then strength and mobility type stuff. So it's very time consuming. When I first started, I was a full-time teacher in Wisconsin. So, you know, you find yourself essentially dedicating your entire entire day to, to work, running, eating, and sleeping, and <laughs> kind of repeat. So, yeah. uh, you know, justifying that time commitment, I think was a bit of a hurdle. You know, ultimately I, uh, I decided to kind of try to hack that a little bit, I guess. And that's when I got into kind of listening to podcasts. I thought, well, if I can listen to an educational podcast and learn something while I'm running, at least I don't feel like I've spent 20 hours this week running and only getting that out of it. But maybe I learned a few things or got interested in a new topic along the way. Mm -hmm. Um, And that kind of led me to the next one too, is, uh, you know, when I first started running, uh, I, I didn't really pay attention to nutrition or anything like that in high school. I was, Typical, it probably could be described as eating 
a fairly crappy diet. Um, but you know, after, once I got into college, I started taking it a little more seriously or just around more people who are, you know, focusing on trying to peak physically. So you, you can find more individuals who are looking towards nutrition. And, you know, I went down that rabbit hole and it's, uh, you know, I, I would say like college onward, I followed what would be considered a typical endurance, high carbohydrate diet with like, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and that sort of thing being kind of the foundation of, um, the carb side of things. And then, uh, a little bit of fats and proteins to go along with it. And, uh, you know, I, I just, that's what all the literature said. That's what endurance training nutrition would always kind of point towards. So, you know, I was new enough to it where I was going to just follow the lead, so to speak. And, uh, it wasn't until the end of 2011, actually, uh, when I was, I did what I had said before I did like three fifty milers that second half of the year. And at the end of it, I started to notice just, um, some, what I considered less than optimal scenarios for someone in their mid twenties yeah. where, uh, you know, I found myself waking up multiple times a night to have to go to the bathroom. My energy levels during the day were just very kind of roller coastery where I'd feel like a lot of energy and then like kind of a slump, like I could take a nap almost anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, after big training blocks and stuff like that, I'd have like swelling in my legs that seemed like it would take longer to go away than it would have in the past. And, you know, some of these things were more noticeable, just I think based on my prior experience, like historically, I'd always been a really good sleeper, like, you know, in high school and college, I'd go to bed and essentially wake up eight, nine hours later, feeling fresh and, you know, maybe wake up once at night or something like that on the rare occasion. So when I was waking up three, four times a night, that was kind of a, a big red flag. And then obviously the energy levels and things were, you know, just things that in my mind seemed unsustainable. So I was kind of, I guess at a bit at a crossroads of deciding as to, you know, whether what I was doing was even sustainable or not. And uh, it was kind of interesting since I was new enough to the sport, I was still very excited and motivated to kind of explore where my capabilities were within it, uh, that I didn't want to necessarily say, okay, I'm going to stop doing ultra marathons or scale back on the level of uh, preparation I want to do and racing I want to do. So that was kind of something I knew in the back of my mind would maybe be uh, the ultimate scenario or the thing I'd have to do, but I didn't want to make that the first thing I did if I could fix it in a different way. Um, Along that kind of same time, I was, uh, while I was listening to some of those podcasts during runs, I started listening to some more nutritional podcasts. And around that time, it started kind of the more, I guess, recent high fat, low carb, keto uh, movement, if you want to call it that, started to pick up steam. So I started listening to a few podcasts that were kind of taking a look at that. And uh, I got connected with uh, Dr. Jeff Bollock and Dr. Stephen Finney and some of their uh, earlier you know, attempts to kind of look at that from both a nutritional uh, therapeutic way as well as a, a performance type of mm -hmm. setup. So that was the first thing I tried. I tried, uh, you know, kind of switching the diet around, essentially going from that kind of high carb endurance nutrition protocol to a uh, less common high fat, low carb. And, you know, then it's just been, I spent probably a couple to a few years really just fine tuning how that worked within my lifestyle versus, you know, someone who's going to use the ketogenic diet as a more of a therapeutic thing or, you know, in a more normal circumstance from a training standpoint. Um, I guess I'm pretty unique in how much training I do. It's more or less quite a bit more than most people are probably going to dedicate time towards. 
and I can appreciate that. So, you know, then it was just kind of matching the lifestyle component to the diet uh, to make it work versus trying to just, you know, stick a, a round peg through a square hole. Wow, you hit on a lot of points right there, but it's, it's, it's <laughs> no, but it's interesting because you talked about, uh, which is normal, right? I mean, I came from that background myself. Like you said, you come from a very high carb background. That you say, especially when we're talking about athletic performance. I mean, it's it's what we're told to do. I mean, it's nothing to be. I mean, it's, considering the fact that it's not actually people's fault to be on that and to be consuming maybe you know processed carbs that may convert more rapidly to you know to be utilized as energy we're not people don't are, are not aware that the, of the effects that those may have on their body long term right and so you mentioned you had like a lot of mood swings and kind of like a lot of you know sleep problems when you when you were on that that type of like nutrition protocol and was then the ketogenic that the first thing you approached to kind of fix that or did you first reach out to something else yeah, that was the first thing I did was, uh, you know, I was, like I kind of said earlier, I'm, I tend to be a curious person. So I was interested enough in just that approach as, as general. It made the most sense to me to, to give it a shot. And um, I was also kind of lucky too, where I was at a point in that year where my season was more or less over. So I had a little bit of flexibility to play around with nutrition. You know, one of the biggest mistakes I think I see people doing is they'll they'll be following a traditional like endurance program and a traditional nutrition program for that. And midway through their training program, they'll decide that, you know, the right move is to switch to a high fat, low carb mm -hmm. diet. And they'll do that in the middle of their training block and it'll just throw a huge wrench into things. And then their, their taste has kind of been soured for the approach because of more or less timing. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, I, I had probably four to eight weeks before I had to really even structure any type of real, specific program so i was able to kind of flip that nutritional component in a time of the year where my physical output was a lot less stressful and the way i describe that to folks is like when you're changing your diet drastically like that's a stressor to your body your body has to adapt to that so you have to be mindful of how much other stress you're putting on top of that because if you have a very stressful life and then all of a sudden you introduce a whole nother stress mm. on top of that it likely won't go well so you kind of have to look at it like if you have a stressful life and you want to add more stress to it you have to find somewhere to remove stress before yeah. you introduce the new one and for me that was just part of it was maybe just lucky that i happened to be at that point of year i didn't find myself in a position where i was gonna switch at mid you know peak training phase or something like that um so, you know, the four, first four weeks I was doing it, I was able to be pretty strict, um, relatively speaking, and not have it feel like my workouts were suffering because I was at most just doing some easy runs. And, you know, what I kind of noticed was uh, I would go out for these, like, just easy kind of shorter runs. And some days I'd feel great and other days I'd feel like uh, I was pushing a lot harder for the pace. So I'd be, like, feeling like my effort was say like a seven minute mile and then I'd look at the watch and it'd be like an eight thirty mile or something like that. And that was kind of like maybe every other run in terms of frequency. And luckily I had done enough homework to realize there was probably going to be a bit of a transition. So I didn't really think too much of it. And then after about four weeks or so, I started noticing that those easier runs were just clicking off really well. I was back down to kind of my average training pace for just an easy 
kind of recovery run. So then when I got into kind of building up for my next race, I more or less had uh, the foundation in place to be able to, to go about it. And then it was just developing like, well, how does my nutrition change as my training changes? So like, how do I, how do I use a high fat, low carb approach when I'm main goal is recovery versus my main goal being peak training? Or how does it look differently when I'm doing like a deload week versus that build up week the week before? Yeah. Or how does it look the week leading into a race versus the week after a race and that sort of stuff. And, you know, over the last uh, nearly eight years, I've just more or less been kind of fine tuning that specifically to me looking at like, well, what what's optimal in this situation versus that one and, and learn to kind of periodize my nutrition the way you would a training block as opposed to just kind of plugging in the exact same nutrition every day, day in and day out. Interesting. Interesting because um, you were, as you said, you you were kind of informed, well informed in a way that you said, okay, I'm gonna time this also in the right time that I'm not gonna be training for an event. I'm not gonna necessarily be training for like a, a race where I want to compete and actually win the race. But I'm actually maybe give it some time to give my body something to adapt to make sure you know I go through this transition phase to through the adaptation phase to make sure. You, you kind of like mitigate any of the symptoms that people tend to experience, right? Like that cramps, like like headaches and all that stuff. And so um, was it that that motivated you to then go on for like longer, even longer races, like 100 mile, even longer than that? Was that kind of like the thing that gave you the confidence to say, all right, maybe this gives me that, like the extra sort of energy or or when did that interest come in, like with the nutrition and maybe the even longer distances? Yeah, you know, I think uh, there's there's maybe some like parallel motivation there. Uh, you know, I think I always envisioned myself when I ran my first ultra marathon to eventually get into some of the longer stuff, like the hundred milers and and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, also knowing, just having a basic understanding of kind of the you know the intensities of these different events and kind of how one nutritional plan may work a lot maybe work better in one circumstance versus another is, is motivating. Cause I think, I don't think too many people will argue with you. If you say the longer the distance gets, the more applicable a high fat, low carb diet will become. Yeah. Uh, when you think about it, if we're just looking at the basic overall intensity of an event, if you take say the marathon versus a hundred mile, we're looking at, you know, using in the marathon, like, you know, up into like a threshold pace, uh, where you're going to be pushing your body to be closer to glycolytic than say if you're out there running a hundred mile where your average intensity might be like 65% of your VO2 max or an intensity that's low enough where you can really lean on almost a strict ketogenic diet to a degree. Um, there's some variables in there that you probably want to consider like if you're going to actually run a very evenly paced effort versus one where you're doing bursts or surges and then slowing back down kind of more akin to maybe you'd see it like the tour de France or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it gets really interesting when you get into the weeds with it, where, where you look at kind of like how you can manipulate your, your fat oxidation rates and like where you kind of want yourself to be. Yeah. And you know what I practice myself and what I tell folks I work with who want to try a high fat, low carb approach to endurance is um, I think a lot of times people they come in thinking like, okay, I want to get as fat adapted as possible. Like that's what my move is. And, um, that can be like, just like you can eat a ton of carbohydrates and barely any fat and make yourself like what the keto community calls the sugar burners. (laughs) Um, You can kind of make yourself like a very 
dominant fat burner too. And just like being a sugar burner can come at the expense of, you know, what your ratio of fat metabolism might be at a given effort. You can kind of do the same thing on the other end of that spectrum. Mm -hmm. So if you're a lot of times you just got to ask yourself, like, what are you doing? Like if you're going to try to run, say like a five kilometer race as fast as you possibly can, you know, getting as fat adapted as you possibly can or following like a zero carb diet is likely not going to be the best for performance minus some like very individual circumstances. Um, But you know, you get up into things that are like a hundred miles long or races that are 24 hours in duration. Now we're looking at intensities that are so low that it could be optimal to be burning mostly fat during something like that. But uh, ultimately, my message usually is think of it as like a sliding scale versus an all or nothing thing. You don't have to be as fat adapted as possible or as carb adapted as possible. Um, in most circumstances, there's probably some middle ground there and you just have to decide where that is and then kind of work towards getting to that spot. I think it's all context related, right? They just say, mm-hmm. what do you need for what type of event? Because as you said it, it's interesting. I mean, a sprinter is not going to benefit from a strict ketogenic diet, whereas in an ultra endurance runner, he may be able to use that to his advantage. But then again, mm-hmm. it's all context related, related right? We're looking again. It what, is. Yeah. And I think, I think where it gets really tricky too is like, because sometimes people just think of it based entirely on intensity. So you have like that description you gave where you have like someone doing the hundred meter dash, which is, you know, about as intense as it gets versus a hundred mile, which is about as aerobic as it gets. Um, And the interesting thing that I find with that is when you get as intense as it gets, the volume of your training and the volume of your race effort is very low because it just needs to be due to how hard you're pushing. So sometimes those folks can actually get away with a more of a strict ketogenic diet because they're, they're just not going to dip deep enough into their glycogen reserves to, to really deplete them down to a point where it's too hard to replace them in time for the next effort. Whereas you get someone kind of in those, like say 5k to marathon distance where the training volume is high and the intensity component is also still there. I think those are the really kind of gray area spots where it's less obvious as to like being able to do like a more black or white comparison, like keto versus high carb, you know, we, we may have to find some middle ground within that or, um, you know, you know, trust what's worked a little bit more, more or less. And that's where I think it kind of gets, gets interesting and where the debate kind of gets more, um, more applicable, but, uh, it's, you know, it's also, it's an interesting thing. You know, I'll get roped into conversations all the time about, you know, is high fat, low carb, good for performance, bad for performance. And, you know, I always kind of laugh a little bit because like people will say performance or endurance. Yeah. And it's like, that's such a wide umbrella that we're casting when we say performance (laughs) and we say endurance. It's like endurance is what, like, you know, 1500 meters or the 24 hours. Cause yeah, (laughs) yeah. it seems nitpicky, but it has to be really when you're talking about, especially when you're talking about like the very tip of the spear type of performance, like meeting your max potential. That's where I think it gets, gets to be a little more um, specific where you have to just get a little more specific about exactly what you're doing. um, Exactly what your background is, what you're experiencing and, and, and you, it's okay to follow what has worked for others to a degree, but ultimately finding out what's going to work for you individually is kind of the key there at that point. I think again, being, 
critical, not just with yourself, but also with other people and seeing if that really works for you and to your goals. And you, do you like, because you mentioned, you mentioned it's not about sugar burner against fat burner. It's a war and they all hate each other, right? We got to find like a, <laughs> we got to find like a sweet spot where, they, where we could eventually be friends and maybe work with both synergistically. Like, do you, do you, so do you not eat carbohydrates at all? Or do you like implement those for your training every now and then? Did you say carbs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is, I think I confuse more people than I, <laughs> than I help with this one. But what I usually try, because usually what's, what ends up happening is like, um, you'll see like someone will look at a specific day or a specific segment of my training and think that that's kind of the holistic approach or the everyday thing for me. The way I describe it to folks is like if you took a calendar of my year and you picked one random day out of there, if you happen to pick a day that I was doing like my peak race, or if you picked a day where I was doing like one of my biggest workouts of the training block, or if you picked out a day and it was a rest day after a race and I was doing absolutely nothing other than recovering, you know, nutrition is going to look a little different or in some cases quite a bit different on that. So take that rest day, you know, I might eat zero grams of carbohydrates that day. Yeah. Uh, take that big training day, you know, and I might flex up to upwards to 20, sometimes even 30% of my intake coming from carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if you unpack that even more, it gets even a little more, um, I don't want to say confusing, but just more like specific to details where, you know, on a big training day or a race day, the volume is so large, I'm almost certainly going to run on a caloric deficit that day. So I'm going to burn substantially more calories than I'm probably going to consume. That doesn't mean I'm going to leave that deficit intact. Uh, I'm going to make up for it in the following days. So let's say I went out and did like a 35 mile training run. And that day I ate like 1500 calories less than what I, what I actually burnt. Well, the next day I'm, I might take off altogether and just re- and rest. And that day I'll probably eat you know, 1500 calories more than I burn. So it ends up being a net zero Yeah. Uh, where it gets confusing then is if you look at like the actual intake of that day where I ran that that much, it might be 20 to 30% uh, carb intake. But then if you include the body fat I burned during that day in order to handle that caloric deficit, it brings those percentages down from just an overall fuel burning standpoint. And then that following day, if I'm taking off completely, I might go zero grams of carbohydrate So ultimately what I end up telling folks is if you average everything out over the course of a year and look at like how many, how much carbohydrate I eat, it's probably gonna be around approximately 10% of my intake comes from carbohydrate and then the rest being fat and protein. But then again, it's about looking at it more in detail, right? And then Mm -hmm. you said it like looking at what is the scenario you're using that for. And I mean, maybe to clarify a little, I think I've heard you talk about you train several times a day sometimes right and i think maybe is that then when you incorporate carbohydrates because i've heard other people say that you don't necessarily need carbohydrates if the recovery time is like long enough if you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah no it's interesting and i think one thing that came out of the results from the faster study that dr volick did was that glycogen replenishing uh happened at the same rate with the high fat cohort as it did with the high carb cohort yeah. so there's definitely glycogen replenishing occurring within uh, the folks eating primarily fat and protein, uh, you know, through glyconeogenesis and that sort of thing, I suppose, where I find it interesting is like where, where we maybe didn't necessarily learn 
from the faster study is what happens when you throw multiple workouts into the context, what happens when those workouts have a intensity component to them because the metrics they're driving that information from came from a three hour treadmill session at a 65% VO2 max intensity. So it may have been at that intensity, the high fat cohort was just burning so little glycogen that they didn't need to replenish that much. Mm -hmm. uh, so then it was easily accountable by just any excess protein or, or fat conversion to um, glycogen. But where I think it gets interesting, and, and I don't, I, I just base this off my experience and my experience that I've helped others with is that when I start getting into that context where like I'm doing a workout in the morning and I'm going to add an intensity component, whether that be like longer cruise intervals at a tempo effort or shorter, like VO2 max type intervals that are going to be more like a three minute session at about hundred percent intensity, you know, and then go out later that afternoon for say an easy run or go to the gym and do some strength session stuff. You know, those are the days where I find that like, if I keep my carbs too low, like down under 5% or 50 grams or less, where I start to feel flat after a couple days of that. Um, and then usually when I just bump the carbs up a little bit to like that 20 to 30% range, that's when I kind of start to feel that, get that pop back in my legs. So from my experience, it's the way I see it is it's, it's less about an, an all or nothing. It's about getting your body in the right position to be able to be metabolically flexible enough to kind of use both fuel substrates in a way that matches the training you're doing or the event you're trying to prepare for. Um, so when I'm kind of figuring out that for myself or for other people, I actually like to lean on a field test a lot more than some of these more traditional ways to test, like, you know, how keto you are, <laughs> you know, like some people, it, it gets interesting because depending on who you ask, someone might tell you, well, if you're keto, you're eating 50 grams of carbohydrates or less. Yeah. And you can pick out a lot of days during my year where I'm eating well above 50 grams of carbohydrate. So it can be easy to say, okay, well, well Zach's not keto because he <laughs> ate 150 grams of carbohydrates that day and then you can also look at blood ketone levels and see if you're you know you know a lot of people say if you're 0.5 millimoles or higher then technically you're in ketosis and therefore you're keto adapted um and i think there's some value in looking at those metrics but they're also very context dependent and you know example i like to share with people is last fall i did a, a big training block leading into a 100 mile race in uh, early November. And during like three weeks of that block, I did a pretty uh, regular test of my blood ketone levels. I was testing usually two or three times a day. And even when I was in my higher carb state of training, where I was letting those carbs get up to like 20 plus percent, um, I was still in ketosis from a you know 0.5 millimole or higher standpoint. I was usually between like 0.5 and maybe I think 2.2 millimoles, somewhere around there. Yeah. And I think I probably tested myself. I'd have to look back. Um, but I think I probably tested myself north of 30 to 40 times. And maybe only one or two of them was I below 0.5. And even then I was still producing some ketones. It was like 0.3 or something like that. So to me, that's more indicative of like the lifestyle determining what your carbohydrate would be within a high fat, low carb context. Yeah more so than trying to kind of grab what's worked for the masses or what works in a more typical scenario. Um, so ultimately what I do is I, I, I lean on probably neither of those metrics as much as I do that field test I was talking about. And what I do is when I start getting into kind of the meat of the training plan, I'll start my long run will start getting kind of longer in duration. And I start to divide it into kind of two categories. 
And one is like a fat adaptation field test and the other is a race day nutrition uh, practice. Mm. So on those fat adaptation field test days, I'm going to do like, you know, maybe a four or five hour training run and I'm going to take nothing but water and electrolytes. So I'm going to take in like no carbohydrates, no fats, no proteins during that run itself. And uh, I'm just going to gauge how my, you know, how, how I feel. Like if I feel consistent, if I feel strong and I don't feel like I have an ebb and flow in energy, then I'm probably fat adapted enough. If I can go four or five hours running uh, without needing to fuel. And then I kind of know, okay, I'm fat adapted enough. Now it's time to work on what strategy I'm going to use during the race itself to make sure like I have a good proven routine in place so that I can be confident of it as, as I get ready to prepare for the race itself. I think, yeah, and it's about becoming, first of all, gaining that fat adaptation, becoming metabolic, metabolically flexible, that you're able to play around with both sort of substrates, right? That you say, I can become fat adapted to the to a degree that I need to be, and then sort of play around with this different strategies and different timings uh, to incorporate carbohydrates so that in the end, I'm actually utilizing as much of that energy that comes in as possible to benefit my competition, right? And then again, it's also, as you said, high ketone levels do not just indicate whether you are a fat burner or not, right? I mean, it's also about the efficiency of your body to utilize those present ketones, right? I mean, how well are you able to cope with that energy that's there? That's also a very important topic. And so, all right, now you you became like fully fat adapted, right? You got into the ketogenic diet. Now you're into this sort of realm. When, when, when was it that you decided I'm gonna go for the world record or I'm gonna go for the American record or was that something you even had in mind or just something that came casually as you were competing that you said at the end, Oh, well, I broke the record or, or was that something you had specifically in mind that you wanted to break? Yeah, you know, so the first time I, I guess I gave it any thought was um, in 2013. Uh, I was, you know, I was training for some races. And I think in, in North America, it's kind of interesting. It's like with the ultra marathon running community, the trail ultras have gotten a lot of momentum over the last decade or so. So much so where it's like the dominant kind of portion of the sport. You know, it gets interesting with ultra marathons because technically it's basically like 50 kilometers up to like, however long you want to run. And it's all technically still an ultra marathon, you know, it could be at 10,000 feet up and down the side of a mountain, or it can be on a, on a 400 meter track, but we yeah. consider it all ultra marathon. So one thing I learned is that specificity is so huge when you're running in a variety, when you have an option to that many different like scenarios. Mm -hmm. So like, if I'm going to do like a flat hundred miler, I want to be training on flat terrain, or if I'm going to do a mountainous trail run, I want to be running, you know, in that environment as much as possible. So at that time I was living in the Midwest and I had a lot more access to kind of flat, maybe some rolling roads yeah. for my training routes. Mm -hmm. And it kind of dawned on me that, that fall of 2013 that you know, maybe I should be focusing more on races that meet that kind of environmental criteria. And uh, that was when I was first introduced to the Desert Solstice Track Invitational that's hosted here in Phoenix, Arizona every December. And, uh, I went there with the goal of, uh, you know, a guy in the sport named, uh, um, uh, John Olson had just actually recently broke the hundred mile American record. I think he ran like 11 hours and 49 minutes or something like that. He was the first American to break 12 hours and a hundred miles. And I thought that was so cool. I was like, well, I think I can maybe do that. And I had, I had done a 50 miler 
I think five weeks earlier and run five hours and 12 minutes. So my thought was, you know, well, if I can run, you know, just under six hours mm -hmm. for the first 50 miles, which shouldn't feel too hard if I can do it in five hours and 12 minutes, yeah. then, you know, maybe I can do another one and get under his time of 1159. Um, I'm sure at that point I was the only person who thought I could do that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, I went there and it, it went well. I ran a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I split like five hours and 45 minutes or something like that for the first 50 miles. And then, um, what would be the, I ended up with 11 hours and 47 minutes and I think 21 seconds for a hundred miles. And then, uh, for 12 hours, there's also like a record for how far you can run in 12 hours. Yeah. So since I hit a hundred miles before 12 hours, I kept going and ultimately ended up running 101.7 miles for 12 hours. And that's where the world record comes in is at that time event. And then the American record was the hundred miler. So I guess that was my first like real good experience that, yeah. okay, yeah, the specificity of training thing is, is a big deal. And it got me interested in that side of the sport a little bit since that was the kind of terrain I had access to. And you know, now that I'm living in Phoenix, I have access to basically anything from, you know, technical trail to rolling trail to flat roads and all that sort of stuff. So I have a little more, options, I guess, available to me, available to me in terms of being able to peak for a variety of different course environments. Mm. Wow. Wow. So you, uh, you were able to basically, you know, kind of like go, you know, double win in that sense, right? <laughs> that you were able yeah. to get to, <laughs> but it's, it's great. I mean, it takes a lot of determination to also take on that challenge, right? To say, I want to do this for myself and maybe, you know, Maybe before we get off of topic of like nutrition based, before we move on, because I, uh, I would really love to talk to you about kind of like the mental aspect, because I see that's always like the huge thing that maybe people, that gets people scared. They say, oh man, how is it going to feel? Is that too much pain? But one thing I would like to talk to you about first before we move on is this aspect of, do you also incorporate like fasting to kind of become fat adapted or to kind of like be able to endure more of like this, uh, events on a, on a sort of fat adapted state without having to necessarily use more carbohydrates do you or do you use fasting in any sort of way to enhance your performance in that way yeah no i think fasting is a very interesting topic especially within kind of the high fat low carb community um and like all the other stuff we were talking about i think context is really big in this um you know i i i, I can i'm very open to be proven wrong on kind of my suspicions with that but but with this but i can tell you kind of how i look at it and I tend to look at fasting in a little different way, maybe than what most folks are. A lot of people are going to look at fasting kind of as like either intermittent where it's a, you know, time restricted eating, like say they have a four hour window or maybe an eight hour window where they'll eat. And then the rest of the time they're going unfed and creating that intermittent fast on a regular basis. And then some folks, you know, they might do less of that and more like, occasionally do like a 24 hour fast or a 48 hour fast or something like that. And, um, I think that that's certainly going to help you burn more fat because you're essentially going to put yourself in a position eventually where you have to, yeah. uh, <laughs> and, uh, but I, I look at it a little more cautiously in the midst of an endurance training program, partly just because your, your metabolic rate is drastically changed. So for me, you know, there might be some days where I'm, you know, burning two to three times my resting metabolic rate. So if I would spend that 24 hours not eating, it would, from an energy standpoint, it would be like fasting for two or three days versus yeah. 24 hours. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm try I try to be sensitive to that 
because I think like fasting for health or therapeutic uses is going to be a little bit different than for performance. And I think you can, you, especially when you're already at kind of race weight, it you're playing with fire a little bit. If you're giving yourself a restrictive eating window, when it's already a semi uphill battle, just to eat enough. Um, when you're in kind of like those higher training phases. So I try to look at it a little more or a little cautiously like that. Um, I don't avoid fasting, but I don't really plan it either. So usually if I do any like significant fasting, it tends to be kind of in the off season when I'm not quite as active. Uh, so I'm not really worried about recovering from a big workout session. I'm more just kind of resting my body and mind from the whole structure of the training program. And, you know, the, the mental like focus on trying to get ready for a specific event when some of that stuff's removed, I find it just a little more applicable. And that's when I would more, more likely do that. But with that said, I've never fasted past 24 hours. So um, I can't really speak personally to anything beyond that, but I know there's folks out there who routinely go behind that. So (laughs) yeah, I think I think the world record is like, what, 382 days, I think it's that. Yeah. Yeah. What was it? There was a, wasn't that, that was that guy who was just like, he was like almost 500 pounds, I think. Yeah. Yeah. They did uh yeah, it was like 380 some days. And I want to say they had him on a fairly structured, like a, like mineral program or vitamin program or something. But uh, I remember reading that story. And one thing they found interesting is, you know, with that massive amount of weight loss, he didn't have like a bunch of loose skin, like what you maybe see when people lose that weight that quickly. And I read somewhere that they were, I think it's all just theory at this point. I don't know if they've proven anything with that experience, but they were saying something about the, just the fact that he wasn't like, um, he wasn't eating protein that his body was just pulling from the resources on board and that allowed his skin to tighten up versus if he had been like supplementing with protein and just been cutting, been fasting on like carbs and fats, like that would maybe lead to like, you know, some of the skin to be loose or something like that. But, uh, it's interesting. It's, uh, I don't think people, people, most people probably would think that that's impossible, but clearly, (laughs) clearly it's not. (laughs) I think it's, I think, Anything that goes beyond like three or four days, I would be really cautious when doing that because I think that dude was like really, he had like a lot of medical professionals around him and they were yeah. all like supervising him. And I mean, you're, you don't just jump in cold turkey on that and say, I'm going to go for 380 days without eating anything. I mean, I mean, it's suicidal if you don't have like professionals taking right. a look at what you're doing. But I think that's interesting because I, I think that would be like a autophagy in a, in a sense, right? That your body is kind of utilizing your own proteins to kind of meet your glucose uh, requirements that you have need for the day, right? But it's interesting. I, have, I, I think I, I would agree with you that there is not a lot of science to back it up so that we can affirm anything here. But it's interesting to see how your body is so clever to generate its own fuel sources to eventually survive. I mean, it's great to see that. Um, now, Zach, I want to talk to you about one topic that to me personally and to a lot of listeners, I think it's very interesting when it comes to endurance sports, which I think is something that I respect a lot. And this is aspect of this mental toughness, the mental endurance that you have to have in order to really be able to sustain that, you know, not just one on one event, like running a marathon or one 100 miler, but being able to do it on a consistent basis. Like, where do you think you were able to kind of build that mental stamina, that sort of endurance to make sure that you cope with those events on a regular basis? 
Yeah, you know, I, it's probably hard to pin down exactly where the variances are versus the commonalities with other people who do it, because I think some of that's probably an individual situation. But, um, you know, for me, I think it's I think it's heavily rooted in curiosity. I, I'm very motivated to kind of see what I can do. And, you know, when I finish a race, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and I enjoy the experience, but it doesn't take too long before I wonder where I start thinking about, well, if I tweak this or if I do this a little differently, maybe I can, you know, improve a little bit or, you know, just kind of enjoying the process as much as the race itself, I think is really important with staying motivated. Uh, because when you think about it, like if I spend say four months building up for a race, even if that race is, you know, all day long, that's still a relatively short period of time versus the amount of time I'm going to spend in those four months building up for it. So I think legitimate, like curiosity within the process is important. I, I think it's hard to find people who are just more or less doing it for the sake of doing it, or you just probably don't end up running ultra marathons. <laughs> um, so I think that that really helps is just kind of really being interested in the building process, being interested in, you know, the feedback your body gives you and testing this stuff. And, uh, and I mean, there's, there's, I think there's catapults in the early stages too, when you're, when like every distance and every race is still relatively new mm -hmm. where like, I think like the first time I ran 50 miles, like it's really intriguing to think, okay, today I'm going to run further than I ever have before. Yeah. Or the first time I ran a hundred miles, like, I'm going to do something I've never done before. And that's just really exciting. And I think where it gets a little more difficult is once you've been in the sport long enough and you've done a lot of stuff. So, yeah. so you know, it's going to be coming, it's fewer and far between before you find an event that you haven't done before or something that's a little more new or unique where you can kind of get that first time feeling. Um, so for me, it's more or less just been, you know, staying really interested in, in I guess maybe maybe feeling like I haven't met my full potential yet is a big driving force there. Uh, you know, if I ever get to a point where I feel like I've met my full potential, that's where it would maybe be difficult to kind of keep that pedal down, so to speak, or, or maybe just be time to focus on a different event where, you know, I don't know what my potential is yet in. So yeah. uh, maybe to be determined. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think, Having being curious just to see to what extent you can take your body really and to see how much you can endure as just a human being as yourself because I think I, I always say to people man you're only going to be on this earth once so might as well try it right might as well just give it a shot and see where it goes yeah yeah and I think the other thing too is the mindset of like how you view failure too uh you know it's it's easy to look at some of my good races and be like well yeah no wonder he wants to do that you know I would love to win a race or something like that, then I would be motivated. And, you know, when you think of like the things that go well, there's a whole host that didn't go. And I think when you look at failure, uh, something you can learn on, that's when it gets really and the curiosity really gets flowing then. Uh, and that's what I usually tell folks who is, when it goes wrong or something's not working right, look at it as a way to problem solving situation as opposed to overall negative or something that just was a waste of time. And I think sometimes that kind of feeds the, the passion more or less. Yeah, I, I think that's great. Being able to pull positives from both the, 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 the blissful moments from like victories, but also being able to to just pull the best from and get the best out of the negativity and the failures that you experience because Especially when you run and when you're going a lot of competitions, man. I mean, people cannot expect to win everything. I mean, you are going to be 
losing certain races despite having put in all of your effort. I mean, that's just that's just how it is, right? I think that's a great thing to consider, man. And, you know, I think now that we're kind of sort of transitioning to sort of the end of the podcast, we, we always like to ask, like, our guests three final questions to kind of get them to know a bit better, to, you know, more like a personal level. And so um, some of them are going to be pretty serious. Some of them, one of them is going to be, like, more of a silly one, more of, like, a funny one. But... Just let it be come from your heart. Like, just let the sack okay. later, like, <laughs> let the honesty just out, man. Just spill it out, man. <laughs> All right, so I think starting off with the first one, right? You being such a an amazing individual with such an amazing story, having gone on to really be become somebody, you know, worth remembering forever. I mean, imagine breaking the world record for the um, I mean... World record in American record running a hundred miles in under in under eleven hours and forty five minutes. That's it's insane. I mean, just consider that. And now we would like to know from you, what are some of the daily routines, some of like the daily habits you have for yourself? Maybe some of the rituals that help you to keep thriving and becoming the best version of yourself on a daily basis. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's um I think one thing that I like to try to do, and I think it actually feeds into being in the right state of mind come race day is uh, being looking at things as like little like bite-sized pieces. So like if I have a, have a big day plan where I have a, a big workout to do and, you know, recording some podcasts, you know, working on some coaching plans and going to an event or something like that, like, you know, rather than thinking like looking too far down the road and thinking like, okay, like I've got to do all this stuff. How am I going to get it done? Thinking about, let's just take it one at a time and not think about the next thing until I finish the one thing that's in front of me and kind of chipping away at it. So I'd like to kind of build my week that way where I can kind of focus on things one at a time and get them all and just know like by the end of the week, I'll get them all done. Uh, so that, that very much feeds into kind of my routine. Um, for me, that's usually when I feel like I'm functioning, functioning best, I usually you know, start the day with, uh, you know, my bigger workout of the day, if I'm going to do more than more than one, uh, and just get that thing done and get accomplished. And then I feel like I started the day out, right. Started the day motivated, started the day out, um, with an accomplishment and then start chipping away at some of the other stuff. And also like in the context of training specifically, looking at each one of those as kind of like one little building block towards what you're trying to accomplish. So rather than looking at the entire, say four months to six months of a training block yeah. and think, how am I going to get all this in? How am I going to do all this? Think of like, well, I can take care of today today and get that consistency piece put in place and then just build off that consistency. And over time, it's like laying one brick at a time. And eventually you're going to have a house, that sort of mindset. Oh, yeah. So that's kind of how I, try to look at the routine of training and stuff like that. No one specific workout is so important that it's going to make or break your race, but consistency within that framework is going to ultimately get you to where you want to be. Mm, that's beautiful. I think having like a looking at it, not just that's kind of like what I was trying to talk about earlier. They just say, you don't look at the macro goal. They just say, you look at this whole big perspective, but look at what you can do on a day-to-day basis to make sure you get to that goal and that then focus on that and try to optimize that as much as you can. Do you have like any sort of ritual you do before the race, anything you, to get you like pumped, to get you like motivated or something you say, it's more of like a, something personal for you that you like to do just to get you on like this mindset of being able to cope with that uh, race? 
Yeah, you know, I think um, I think before a race, like routine is good, just because you know then you're going to be in a position where there's just a lot of nerves and a lot of like kind of anxious energy because you've just more or less put in a bunch of work and you're as fit as you've been ever been maybe in some circumstances and you're just kind of waiting for the the event to come so it can get a little anxious yeah. uh so then i think having kind of having some structure in there so you kind of know like what you should be doing and, and you you get good at that over time after you do you find what works and what doesn't work yeah. for you as an individual um you know for me it's more or less sometimes i like to look at it as a time to reflect on kind of the whole process, uh, cause like what I said earlier, even these long races are relatively small in duration compared to the amount of time you use to prepare for it. So sometimes it's just a good opportunity to kind of reflect back on everything you did to get ready for it. Trust that training and you know, just talk yourself into, uh, getting ready for mentally getting ready for what you're about to do. And, and then it's, then sometimes I just like to run like, you know, a mental simulation as to like, you know, what I want to do in specific parts of the race. Uh, you know, the interesting thing about say a hundred mile race is you're going to probably find yourself in a rough spot. If you're thinking about the finish at two miles, because you just got so much to wrap your head around at that point. Uh, whereas if you look at it as well, I'm going to just do this first six mile section and get this done right before I even consider that next section. And then you just take those each one at a time. And before you know it, you're down to your last section. Um, I think kind of walking yourself through that process in the days leading in can be very helpful to kind of draw a roadmap of what the right mindset should be on race day. Yeah, and then being able to take a little bit of pressure off your shoulders, right? And just say, all right, I have a system, I have a structure, I'm going to focus on that. And this way, I'm not going to panic and I'm not going to sabotage my, my performance, not necessarily because I didn't train well, but because my mind is just not prepared to cope with the challenge. I think that's great, man. And now, you know, let's transition now to the second question that we like to ask our guests. And this is, again, this is, it's, it's kind of like a funny one, but just be honest. First of all, before I say the question, it doesn't have to be health related whatsoever. Really, from, okay. the, from the bottom of your heart, it could be a childhood memory. It could be something you can have with your family, with your uncle, whatever. Like, it doesn't have anything to do with, with health. It can be, it can be, but it doesn't have to. So... Let's say somebody told you, Zach, you are only able to the rest of your life to the day you die, you're only able to eat one more food. What would that be and why? One more food? Um, probably a ribeye steak. Cool. <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> and and the why, I guess the why would be if it's the only food I'm going to eat again, that's about as a fatty of a cut of uh, beef you can get. So then I feel like I've got the, the fatty source of uh, calories as well as a good source of protein in there as well. And, and it's complete. <laughs> <laughs> and then again, who wouldn't love a ribeye steak? I mean, just, let's just be honest. <laughs> yeah. My, my co-host for human performance outliers podcast is cause he'll get grief every once in a while. Cause he basically only eats ribeye steaks for the most part. And, uh, don't you ever get sick of that? And he says, I've never seen a ribeye steak I don't want to eat. And I've been doing it for a couple of years now. So. <laughs> but that's the truth. I mean, we just got to face the truth. I mean, I mean, a good, a well-cooked piece of steak 
regardless of what cut it is, I mean, it's always going to taste delicious. Unless you're like a vegan or a vegetarian, of course. And that's another story. But that, I think that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast by itself. We'll make it grass-fed and local so we're not doing any harm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. We got to keep, like, the ethical part of it there as well. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. So now, moving on to the, the final question. And this is really, this going to be more of like a personal one, but feel free to let yourself go. You know, let's say, Zach, for whatever reason, let's say you were able to, you were the next genius here on this planet Earth, the next Albert Einstein, and you were able to develop a machine, a time machine, that gave you the possibility to go back in the past and see a younger version of yourself. It could be you yourself in the teen years, it could be yourself as a little boy in your college years, maybe before you went keto, whatever. If you had the chance to talk to that younger version of yourself in the past, what would be one piece of advice you would share with that version of you to make sure you become the best version of yourself? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think I would just, uh, I would emphasize to myself uh, the importance of being patient. and looking at things from more than one lens, because I think it's easy to kind of look back on prior experiences and think like, oh, this is what I should have done better, or this is, or why did I do that? If I would have went this route, I would have gotten to that end goal quicker, rather than looking at it as like, well, that happened for a reason to get you to where you are. So I think, um, and I think patience is a huge factor to that. Um, you know, that and, uh, um, if I can kind of have two, I guess. I would emphasize what I said earlier too, where like, uh, look at failure as an opportunity to learn versus like, you're not good at this. Yeah. I think it's easy, especially for young folks. And, you know, I was certainly like this when I was younger, where if you fail at something, you just don't want to do it because you're afraid that like, you're going to look bad or you're not going to look like you're capable. Um, and that's unfortunate because I think people miss out on opportunities by doing that, I'm sure I have. Uh, so I think like, um, I don't know, I don't remember exactly when it was that I started thinking of failure differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I did, I remember thinking that, well, this makes so much more sense than looking at it purely as a negative circumstance. Is there anything you regret particularly that you would say is that's the, the advice you would give yourself? Um, in terms of like, if I had viewed failure differently, if I would have done things differently in the past? Yeah, exactly. Like, is there anything you would like to have come out differently? Oh, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I would say differently. Um, because like I said, I think things happen for a reason and that's why you end up who you are. So at risk of altering that too much, maybe, (laughs) maybe I wouldn't. I mean, if you want to, if you look at it hypothetically, I always, I do wonder just like the curious, curious side of me is like, you know, what would it be that have been like if I had followed say a high fat, low carb diet my entire life, like what would be, what would be different? Cause you know, I sometimes get earmarked as kind of the, the high fat, low carb endurance guy. But when you look at it holistically, even though I've done it for eight years, um, you know, that leaves me with, uh, you know, 24 years of my life that I didn't do it. So, (laughs) or 25 years of my life that I didn't do it. So, uh, it'd be interesting to see like if, if that was the process from day one, how much, would there be any difference or would I be in the same spot from just a nutritional plan? It's just an, an interesting thought. I would need that time machine to make that one happen. Though. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Maybe one day, maybe that would be great. <laughs> well, I'm interested too, because like uh, there's another guy in the sport of ultra running who follows a pretty similar approach to, to me. His name is Jeff Browning and 
he's he's amazing. He's uh, I think he's turning forty eight this year, and he's been like, which I think in most sports, forty eight is considered probably too old to be competitive. But he's been third, fourth, and fifth at the Western States Endurance Run, which is the most competitive hundred miler in North America on the trail side of things, um, and arguably the first or second most competitive in the world. And you know, he's managed to be on the podium there three years in a row at, at that age. And, uh, you know, so he's, uh, he's got some kids that, uh, you know, are following more, more of a higher fat approach, I think, than what you're going to probably see in most kids. So it'll be interesting to see like what happens with, uh, some of the, the younger generation that's for whatever reason, kind of picked up on this stuff years before I had yeah. and kind of see where, see what, if any difference that makes having that background in it. Yeah. It's, it's it's crazy to see you know how much a human being can accomplish just by tuning little things in 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 its life in its lifestyle right i think it's going to be great to look at in 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 upcoming years you know uh but then again i mean you still have a lot i, I don't know to when you consider to race competitively but i mean you still have a lot of a lot of room to go maybe you're going to go on and, and break even more records maybe perform even better in the future like do you have any sort of project planned out for the future specifically any sort of goal you have in mind yeah well since i brought up jeff i i like to say like well you know jeff is 15 years older than me he's still killing it so i've got at least 15 years left yeah. <laughs> you're gonna get him <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a few things that, that I haven't done in terms of events and things that I would like to focus in heavily in the next few years. I think one of those is um, the 24-hour distance where you just get on like a super runnable environment um, where there's very little logistical hurdles in your way and you just see how far you can get in 24 hours. Um, I've done a couple of those events um, unsuccessfully to date, so that's something I think I'll be good at when I kind of figure out that puzzle. So that's one I'm interested in in the next year or so to really kind of take a good swing at um from a little maybe different than typical racing there's a lot of kind of they call them like fastest known times where it's just a specific route and it's uh you know who's covered that terrain the quickest over time and there's lists and things that go along with that and the one that's caught my eye the most since i kind of started running is this uh um run across america sort of route where you go from san francisco to new york and see how fast you can cross the country essentially and the guy who's got the record now um pt uh he averaged like 70 miles a day <laughs> and rent yeah i can't remember. i think it was like um right around 40 days total but 40 days on average of 70 miles and just kept clicking away so that's super oh, interesting to me um something i'd like to try to maybe do um, down the road as well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of events too that are out there that are like kind of iconic that I haven't done. That'd be fun. Um, I'm actually going to do the Spartathlon this, uh, this year in September, which is, um, a race from, uh, Athens to Greece, 153 miles on some rolling roads out there. And it's one of the more, it's one of the older, more historic ultra marathons. So that'll be kind of fun to check out. Um, that and let's see is there any other in in the u.s there's a couple of trail races i'd like to do um that i haven't the leadville hundred is a pretty historic one that'd be fun to take a swing at down the road and yeah there's i mean i could go on all day probably <laughs> just keep thinking and do different things i mean those are ridiculously incredible goals that i'm sure you are 
more than capable to teach. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm, I'm going to make sure to keep an eye on you, on your progress. But now, Zach, if somebody of the Keto Heroes community, I mean, you're part of it now, I mean, first of all, but then, I mean, who, if somebody would like to connect with you, where would be the best place to find you? Like, are you on social media? Where would be the best place to connect with you? Yeah, so if they kind of want to have a one spot where they can find all the different ways, it's probably easiest to go to my website at ZachBitter.com. Um, I'm most active in social media on Instagram, which is just at Zach Bitter. Um, but yeah, you can reach out to me there on uh, my website or via social medias too. All right, great. I, I'm going to list that in the show notes. Uh, guys, make sure if you're listening to this, you just go ahead and check out the show notes, connect with Zach because you have an amazing story. And once again, Zach, it's been Phenomenal to have had you on the show, you know, maybe after you, you, you've gone on to uh, maybe reach some of the goals you have planned out, maybe you, you jump in back in the pocket so we talk about further on that. But first of all, man, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. We appreciate your time, really. Hopefully you had a great time yourself. Honestly. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It, would, it was a blast and I'd be happy to come back on down the road. <laughs> That's great. All right. So guys. Guys, Keto Heroes, hopefully you had a great time on this podcast. Hopefully you were entertained. You could pick up a lot of value from this. And make sure to go ahead, check out the show notes. Don't forget to share some love with Zach. Connect with Zach. Leave a message. Feel free to leave us a review if you enjoyed this podcast. And other than that, guys, we'll meet you then on the next one. Stay tuned and see you then on the next episode of the Keto Heroes podcast. Well, folks, that is it with this week's episode of the Keto Heroes podcast. Hopefully you had a phenomenal time and feel free to leave us a review and share this with a very good friend. Oh, and don't forget to check out the show notes to connect with Zach and we'll catch you then on the next episode. Thank you a lot for being part of the Keto Heroes community.